Amen. Amen. Thank you to Josh and Mel for leading us in worship. Well, track down a Bible if you can and get with me to Psalm 22. Um, since the uh, onset of COVID-19, we've made some adjustments to our experience at church, and uh, we quickly decided that we were going to go to the Psalms to find words that would steady our hearts and give us language for how we're processing everything that's currently happening. And I don't know about you or if you've been a part of this experience thus far, but God has been incredibly kind in speaking over us and helping us to navigate these uncertain times. Uh, so having spent a bunch of time in the Psalms, I wanted to go to Psalm 22. You'll notice very quickly that it is the Psalm of the cross, that it is the event uh, when Jesus went to the cross, to Calvary, you can hear on his lips the words from this Psalm. And when the gospel writers were interpreting the events of that day, they were recognizing that much of what Christ did in that moment was a fulfillment of what was written hundreds and hundreds of years previously. And so Psalm 22 starts like this at the very top. It's just the titling, but it says, For the director of music to the tune of the doe of the morning, a psalm of David. In other words, it's liturgy for the people of God. It is language to help us sing when things are not going well. And it's language to help us sing about what God was ultimately going to do in the sending of his son. So when we look at the text, we're going to look at it under three different headings. Uh, the text divides very easily into two sections, the anguish of the broken in verses 1 to 21, and then the hope of glory in verses 22 to 31. But right in the middle of that, we're going to tuck in a, a, just a time where we reflect on the cross of Jesus Christ and how what he did on that day was a fulfillment of what was written here in Psalm 22. So let's get to work. Uh, let's pray first and then we'll get after it. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would please use this time in your word to speak truth over each of our hearts. I'm grateful for every person who is logged on tonight and who will watch this later. And I am praying that you would use this ministry to help them navigate this day and, and really their entire lives in light of what you've done. So, God, would you please speak loud and clear? Help us to know your son. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. The anguish of the broken, the cross of Jesus Christ, and the hope of glory. The anguish of the broken is verses 1 to 21, and it is this lengthy section where David, the writer, is describing all of the challenges that he has been through. It's a psalm that's very helpful for us because we go through this broken world and we recognize very quickly that there is trauma and there is pain and there is loss and there is hardship. And, and I'm so glad that the Bible is honest enough to address those things head on, that it really does give us language to be able to express what's going on at the deepest level of our hearts. So the first thing that you find here is this language of abandonment. That it's talking as if God were absent in the midst of this experience. And it's abandonment in the face of God's covenant faithfulness. It's a relationship between David and God. And he knows God. He can look at the history of God dealing with his people. And that, I think, even amplifies it for him. Because he feels that God has left him in this current situation. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of my anguish? 
My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. It's this language that's saying, my life is falling apart here. And when I pray, I feel that you are absent from me. I feel that I'm crying out to you and you have forsaken me. You are so far from saving me. My cries of anguish, you are so far from them that when I cry out by day, you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. I was thinking about a couple different people from our church, and I was thinking about the, um, the honesty of them, that within the last couple of years, they have probably been through the worst part of their lives. And they would be able to say that this, these two verses here, these verses are something that they could take on their own lips and say with, with brutal honesty, God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me in the circumstance that I'm in? I have been crying out to you and you have not answered. I've been petitioning you and pleading with you to do something and you have not. And nonetheless, I know you to be a faithful God. In verses 3 to 5, we see this reflection on the faithfulness of God. It's saying, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted in you, and you delivered them. To you they cried out, and they were saved. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. There's this awareness that God is faithful and has been faithful historically. And that's one of the reasons why it feels even more traumatic to say, I know your character. I know what you've done before. I know how you've saved our ancestors before. They cried out to you. Their cries of anguish, and you heard them, and you delivered them. They trusted in you, and you did not put them to shame. But here, here I am, and I'm crying out to you day and night, and there is no answer. And that's then this tension that we're going to carry through this entire psalm, this tension of trusting in God, but being honest with how we feel. And that is a skill of the believer. We need to be able to say, we know God to be good. We know him to be in a, a gracious and compassionate God. We know his character. We know his ability, and, we, and when we don't experience that, we still cling by faith to the truth that he has done it before, he will do it again. It's not happening how I want right now, but I know God to be faithful. Nonetheless, there's a public embarrassment about the situation as he reflects on all that he's going through. Not only is he feeling abandoned by God, but now he's being ridiculed by others. Look at verses 6 to 8. He says, I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. In other words, he's saying, not only is my life very traumatic right now, but the people who are looking at me are mocking me because they know that I'm a follower of God and they look at the circumstances of my life and they're saying, Look at you. You trust in God. Where is he? You, you, you're trusting in God's salvation, but he's not doing anything. Are you sure that he's real? Are you sure that he's powerful? Are you sure that he cares for you? And that then is insult to injury as we go through these different things and we are wrestling with that experience of, I'm crying out to you, God, and you're not answering. I know that you're able, and now I'm being mocked for it. And then there's a personal plea in verses 9 to 11 where, again, the psalmist is simply saying, what else am I going to do? You're my God. 
Look with me at verses 9 to 11. Yet you have brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. He is acknowledging the, the, the trouble in front of him and the enemies around him. And he is saying, I don't know what else to do other than to trust in you. I'm going to you. In other words, look at how this unfolds. I know, I feel as if you've left me in this circumstance. I know you could do something about it. Everyone is giving me grief that you are not answering my prayers. I'm a mess, but I'm your mess. And some of us need to say that to God tonight. My life is not what I want. It feels broken. It feels beyond repair. I am a mess, but I'm your mess. And that is exactly what David is teaching us to do. And it's one of the things, I mean, Jane Browning, one of the members of our church, she talks about this. There's this uh, ability of the believer to be able to say to God, things are not right. And here's how I feel about it. And God is a big enough boy that he can handle all of that. We need to learn from this psalm how to let the anguish of our heart be poured out because life is broken. I'm so surprised by people who are walking around life giving advice for how to have a better life and how to, you know, realize all your dreams and these different things. And they talk about, you know, you just need to try harder and be better and do more. And, um, and it creeps into the church as well. And, and I just have gotten to the point where I'm like, what planet are you living on? If you deal with real people for any amount of time, you will recognize there is a brokenness about this world and it is in need of repair. And here we are finding language that we can put to that brokenness. Things are not how they should be. I feel abandoned by God. I cry out to him, but I know he is good. I'm a mess, but I'm his, I'm his mess. Well, he looks around and he sees all of these enemies and he describes them in metaphorical language. There are bulls and lions, but there are people who are surrounding him. And if you know anything of David's life, he, he was... Uh, hunted for many years. He was tracked for many years as people were, were seeking to destroy him. And so he had to live in caves and, and under, uh, in holes in the mountains, and he had to um, run from trouble. And there were always people who were trying to find him to do him harm. So in this psalm, he talks about that, and he gives language to it, and he says, many bulls surround me, Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. He's looking around and he's saying, these prideful beasts are seeking to destroy me. And, and I am at my wit's end. In verses 14 to 15, he begins to describe how utterly tired and discouraged he is. There was a season in my life, not too long ago actually, where I was talking to my wife and I had recently been through a couple of ministry failures and, and uh, had some things that were just coming to the surface that I wasn't thrilled with, and, and um, I was just weeping. And I was just recognizing and saying, I don't know what's wrong right now, but I've got nothing left. And that's what David is saying here in verses 14 and 15. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of the earth. As language that's saying, I am at my wit's end. I've got nothing left in the tank. 
and I am so discouraged and disheartened. And there are these enemies around me, these bulls of men, these lions, and they are seeking to destroy me, and I have nothing left. I am surrounded by villains. Look with me at verses 16 and following. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garment. So he is entirely surrounded by all of these wicked men. And again, he cries out for help. He's being honest about his situation, but he's going to God and he's saying, would you please rescue me? You, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. So here in Psalm 22, we've been given language then that we can use. And we can look at the difficulties of the life that we are facing and we can say, this is not how it's supposed to be. And I can unleash the the brutal reality of how I feel about it. And God can handle it. And we can then learn to do that thing where we're saying, this is not how, it, how, how I want it to go, but I still trust in God. And I continue to appeal to him. And I continue to look to him for help. So in those first 21 verses, we get the anguish of the broken. Now I want to think with you about the cross of Jesus Christ. The psalm here, if you are familiar with the events of Good Friday, many of the things that I've already read tonight should be familiar to you. They, they should kind of stand out to you. If I've heard that before, where have I heard that before? And it is because Jesus at the cross took this language on his own lips and he spoke it about that circumstance that day. And when the gospel writers recounted those events and they turned them into, into letters and they turned them into, you know, the, the scripture that we have, they saw all that Jesus was doing that day as a fulfillment of Psalm 22. Even though it happened hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. Listen to, uh, I'll point out a few of the things that show up in the New Testament when that story is being told of Jesus going to the cross. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he cried out to God in his language, and he said, what's translated this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From the cross, he takes the words of Psalm 22, and he spills them out to God. I feel abandoned by you, and he cries out, and he's revealing that separation between he and the Father, and that relationship then for the very first time being different than what he had always experienced and always will experience. He feels forsaken by God. He was mocked by people. The people around Jesus during the time of his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion, they were laughing at him and mocking him. They were spitting on him. They, were, they would put a bag over his head and they'd say, They'd whack him with a stick and go, prophesy who hit you. Prophesy. Tell us which one of us. You, we, you know, you're, you're some kind of great prophet. Why don't you tell us who it is? If you're so awesome, tell us who it is that's hitting you. They put a, a garment around him in mockery. They bowed down to him. Hail, king of the Jews, look at you. You're a mess. They despised him and they mocked him. In Psalm 
22 puts it like this, scorned by everyone, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. That language is exactly what's quoted by the New Testament writers when Jesus is hanging from the cross and people are walking by him, hurling insults at him, saying, if you're the Messiah, you've been talking about saving people? Can't you save yourself? They're mocking him and saying, hail king of the Jews. Look at this joker. And so Jesus himself understands what David was talking about here because he went to the cross and was scorned and mocked and ridiculed by others. He was pierced. Look at verse 16. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierced my hands and my feet. That doesn't need much explanation, but Jesus Christ was hung on a crucifix, on a Roman execution device, and he was pierced there by them. Verse 17, all my bones are on display. All my bones are accounted for. In, in John's letter, as he recounts the events, the Roman soldiers uh, went around because of a storm and the circumstances, and they were breaking the legs of the other people who were being crucified. But when they got to Jesus, they, they saw that he was already dead, and they put a spear in his side. But then it's told a little bit later on, this was in the fulfillment of the scriptures. Not one of his bones was broken. All of them were accounted for. His bones were on display. His garments were divided. Verse 18, they divided my clothes among them and they cast lots for them. They, th that's exactly what the soldiers did. When Jesus was hanging from the cross and they stripped him naked to humiliate him and, and he had this uh, garment that was seamless and they said, let's divide, let, let's, let's divide up his garments. Let's cast lots to see which one of us should take this gear home. All of these things help us to understand that what Jesus was doing really was what this psalm is pointing to. That the Psalm 22 really is pointing forward to this significant event of God sending his son and Jesus going to the cross. So what does that mean for us then? What does that mean for us? I have got a couple things that I want to share with you. The first thing is, if David can express the brokenness and the anguish, and there's some kind of connectedness with what Jesus did at the cross, I guess what I want to say is there is a solidarity between whatever it is you're suffering and what Jesus was willing to do for you. It really changes the nature of suffering in general when you begin to see that your suffering is not something that is remote and, and unclear to God, but Jesus himself was willing to suffer. And so when you pour out your heart and you express the brokenness and you express the sorrow and the anguish and the difficulties of the life that you found yourself in, you find yourself in good company. Jesus Christ knows exactly what it is like to suffer and to ultimately die for others. So the Apostle Paul, when he reflects on this later on in Philippians, he talks about this desire to share, to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Your sufferings have some kind of connectedness with what Jesus did there on Calvary. And that changes everything. But another thing that we can take away from the reading of Psalm 22 and the reflection on Jesus fulfilling it is that the suffering of Jesus was purposeful and intentional. What he did there was according to the plan. 
what he did there was not incidental, but it was very strategic on the part of God. That God knew exactly what needed to happen for our redemption. And he then sent his son to redeem this broken world. Jesus at Calvary and what we are talking about and thinking about and singing about and what we will do when we take communion together, all of it is pointing to this reality that it is at the cross of Jesus Christ and through his suffering and through his dying that we are redeemed. We place our faith in him and we receive the gift of eternal life. But we have to look at Christ on the cross to receive that incredible gift. So his suffering was purposeful and intentional and for you and for me. He is, as the Bible describes, the one who is slain, the one who is executed before the foundations of the earth. God loved you enough that he devised a plan before he even created the world that he was going to love you enough to send his son to die in your place. The third thing that we see then shows up at the end of the psalm, and it is this hope of glory. <clears throat> There's a hope of glory in verses 22 to 31, and I'll Uh, give you just a a few different ways that this shows up. The first is, there's a hope of glory in the sense that there's relief from the struggle. There's relief that God is going to do something. David's looking forward and he's saying, right now I feel attacked, I feel um, embattled, I feel surrounded, but I know that you are a delivering God. Verse 24 puts it like this, he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. He's acknowledging that even though he felt like God was absent from his circumstances, he was very much present in them. And he was not despising or scorning the suffering of his servant. So there is relief. There's the hope of God bringing about deliverance. And sometimes it's immediate and it's physical and it's tangible. And sometimes it's what we Hope for as Christians that when Christ returns, he will make all things right again. He will judge the earth and set things straight. And we then can be the people who recognize there is relief coming. God is on his throne and he is at work and there is a day coming where we will be relieved from the suffering that we go through in this world. A second thing that we see here with this hope of glory is this idea of mission. In verses 27 to 28, one of the beautiful things about Christ's willingness to go to the cross is that through that, all kinds of people come to know God in a saving way. Look, Look with me, verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over all the nations. We then see that there's an advancement of the mission of God and it is through the cross of Jesus Christ. It is through what he was willing to do at Calvary. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All people, all families and nations will bow down before him, recognizing him for who he really is, that dominion belongs to the Lord for he rules over all the nations. What a beautiful concept, but the cross then is a missionary reality that through the cross, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are coming to saving faith in him. So there is a hope of glory. There's a hope of more people coming to know him. Right now in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the silver linings is the fact that there are many people who are open to the things of God. Maybe that's you tonight. 
you are open to the things of God, and as you reflect on the cross and what God was willing to do for you, my hope and my prayer is that many people would come to saving faith, that people from all over the globe would come to saving faith in this incredible Lord, Jesus Christ. Finally, it results in worship. The hope of glory results in worship. It's personal. It should show up in how you think about God and how you express that to him. Verse 22 puts it like this, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, as I gather with others, I will praise you. I will worship you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel. It's saying that we need to be a a person who, if you believe this to be true, and you recognize what Christ did for you, you declare his praises wherever it is that you go. In the great assembly, as you attend church one day, together with the saints again, hopefully not too far off in the, in the future. You declare his praises. You, you join with all the descendants of Jacob in honoring him and giving him the reverence of which he deserves. We worship him. If we recognize what God was doing at the cross, we, we should respond with worship. Verse 25, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. In other words, it's just saying that we become a worshiping people and it is on account of what God has done in Christ Jesus. Now, this worship is comprehensive. It's for everybody. And it's described here in the text in front of us. It's the poor and the rich and the future generations. It's indiscriminate in the people that it applies to, that everybody, whoever would call on the name of the Lord, would receive salvation and learn to worship the Savior. The poor, look at verse 26, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. The poor will receive the food that they're longing for and they will be satisfied. They will experience the provision of God and they will enjoy that blessing. But the rich aren't excluded either. It's not just for the poor, but even the rich people will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive, poor and rich, together before the cross of Jesus Christ, worshiping the one who is the Redeemer. And future generations as well. Look at verses 30 and 31. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness Declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Jesus Christ went to the cross in fulfillment of Psalm 22. He is redeeming a people for himself. It is something that results in our worship. If we rightly understand what God did there, it results in us loving and cherishing God our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. We tell the future generations about it and we declare it then to all people He has done it. God has brought salvation to his people. So would you trust in him? Would you believe in him? Would you receive from him eternal life? And on this Good Friday, the worst day in history, but also the best day in history, let's trust in our risen and reigning Christ who went to the cross to die for us. So would you pray with me, please? Lord, I ask right now for everyone who's listening, that they would have a greater appreciation for what Jesus did for them. 
if they've never understood that before, would you give them the courage to go, to, to place their faith in him, to trust him as Lord and Savior and Redeemer, to see what he did as the greatest expression of love, that he was willing to die for them. I pray for all of us tonight as we're contemplating this reality that we would be moved by it, that we would not only reflect on it and remember it, but we would worship you because of it. Help us to do that, please. We pray in your name. Amen.